Hello and welcome to this month's edition of our Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. I'm Abby and I'm the digital editor for Biotechniques. Today I'm joined by Tristan. Tristan, please can you introduce yourself and maybe even give us a fun fact? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. I'm Tristan, I'm the assistant editor for Biotechniques and my fun fact would probably be that a few years ago I learned some pretty basic level Swahili sign language. That is a great fun fact, thank you very much. So this is actually our very first Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. So we should probably explain a little bit of what this will be about. Any avid Biotechniques subscriber will know that every month we publish a tech news piece on a different topic. Whether it be CRISPR, cancer research, antibodies, the list goes on. We're going to utilise these podcasts to provide an audio overview of what's going on in each of those different topic areas every month. I hope that makes sense. Tristan, do you have anything else to add? That all makes sense to me. I will add that every podcast will hopefully have a different special guest, except for this one, when I'm afraid it's just us. But we do have a good topic to begin with. This focus will be on Green Labs, which was our January tech news topic. If you've already read it, it's called The Unsustainable Lab, then that's brilliant. And if not, then hopefully this will be brand new information for you. So now we're going to switch roles slightly. So I wrote the tech news piece, so I'm going to become the interviewee. And Tristan is about to take the lead as the host. Okay, grand. So my first question, so with regard to single-use plastics, what kind of negative contribution is the scientific community making to this global epidemic? Is there like a quantifiable amount we're contributing. Yes it is quantifiable and I actually found this quite shocking. In 2015 some researchers from the University of Exeter determined that five and a half million tons of plastic waste is generated globally (laughs) in the course of scientific research. I think it's about 1.8 percent of the total global plastic production can be attributed to bioscientific research and if you think about it the amount of Eppendorf's or plastic pipettes that you might use even just for one ELISA in the lab, that can get pretty out of hand if you need to keep doing it again. It's kind of understandable. Um, and I guess just like the importance of scientific integrity and ensuring accuracy is really important. So we do need to make sure that we're using equipment that's going to provide us with reproducible results there's not going to be any contamination and scientific research is for the progression of humanity it sounds quite dramatic (laughs) but it kind of is so it's quite important that we do use these single-use plastic things and in terms of plastic production in general it's so much bigger than just one experiment or one research lab and so while scientists probably do need to look at their plastic usage it's probably not scientists that are the crux of the problem. Okay, so that's really interesting. Um, But after the University of Exeter published this research, it's actually some other unis that have taken the lead with starting to reduce their plastic usage, isn't it? Yes, so there's actually quite a few universities now that are taking steps to become, well, I guess plastic-free universities in the sense of like how plastic-free can you become as a university. So I spoke to Tom Cooper, who is a sustainability program officer from the University of Leeds and he told me a little bit about their 2023 commitment which means that they're aiming to be single-use plastic free across the whole of the University of Leeds by 2023 and they're hoping that they can cut out all single-use plastics across catering and offices by 2020. So it's quite big ambitions but Tom seemed really confident that it could happen. Excellent, that sounds like a really good ambition. Um, And so something as well I'd ask is, so I remember from my time at university in the lab, 
always using single-use plastic, filling up those big yellow bins with the um, pipette nibs and stuff like that. But what I'd ask is, why is it that single-use plastics are so heavily relied upon in labs? Well, I guess, like I've already touched on, it's all to do with sterility, accuracy, ensuring there's no contamination, no interference, making sure that their results are reproducible. And there's a lot of experiments where you just can't have any interference. Like if you're working with RNA, then you can't have any RNA's contamination, which can just happen in the air anyway. But obviously, if you've got equipment which isn't properly clean and decontaminated, then that could be a real issue. And Tom actually did talk to me about things that individual departments are already doing to try and decrease their single-use plastic consumption. Some of them are using reusable test tube racks instead of single-use ones, which I didn't even realise was an issue across labs because I've always used reusable ones anyway. And other departments are using biodegradable latex gloves instead of plastic ones, but there's also quite big challenges with that. So I think Tom said that one of his colleagues did some research and about 10 glass Petri dishes Petri dishes, costs the same as 600 plastic single-use ones. Wow, so that's quite a big difference, and that's obviously going to be quite a big barrier to unis making a change, is that, that cost. Yeah, so the cost just isn't sustainable for universities at all. And if you think about political environments, for example, like scientific funding, it can be a little bit at risk, so it is difficult for them, definitely. Another really good example that he gave me, which I thought was quite interesting, was that for medics, for example, they need to be trained with the same equipment that they're going to use when they're fully qualified in a hospital. And obviously, all of that equipment has to be fully sterile, single-use plastics. I think they are going to try and look into alternatives, but I don't think that it's really going to be possible with that kind of work. The University of Leeds, they're hoping that their expertise in plastics and polymers, they can potentially come up with some more solutions. So I think a difficult point there is the fact that because medics are going to have to use the stuff that the NHS uses, until that changes, the universities, there's no point following suit to change that implementation. Okay, so um, despite being one of the leading universities, University of Leeds does have the creation of one of the most energy-intensive pieces of lab equipment, the fume hood on its sort of environmental conscience. How are some people trying to reduce the impact of these pretty vital pieces of equipment on the environment? So yeah, fume hoods, actually, I don't know if this is surprising to a lot of other people, but it's quite surprising to me. Huge energy savings can be made simply by putting the sash down on a fume hood. I was surprised by how easy that was as a solution. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I didn't realise as an undergraduate that if I'd have just put my sash down, I would have been saving. I know it's quite small, but you kind of feel like you're saving energy. You're saving money for your university at the same time. So actually the Harvard Chemistry and Chemical Biology Department, they started a shut the sash competition in 2005. Um, and their aim was to tackle the high energy consumption of fume hoods, as well as promoting awareness of just simply shutting the sash. So they use incentives like pizza parties and wine and cheese nights, which I feel like are really good incentives and I definitely would have been up for getting some of them. I think it's a good way of getting students on board as well. Yeah. Um, and since they started it in 2005, so they started with five labs in it and now they've got over 19 labs and over 350 researchers involved 
which I suppose in one department is incredible, really. And it's actually led them to have 30% lower fume hood exhaust levels, which converts to an energy saving of, I believe, 200,000 US dollars and 300 metric tons less greenhouse gases emitted into the atmosphere. Wow, that's incredible. So there have also been indications that enzymes might be able to help us with the sort of single-use plastic problem going back to that. Do you want to tell us about a pretty fortuitous discovery that led to the start of considering enzymes as, a, as an option? Yes, yeah, so I think this one is actually one of my favourite stories. It's quite fun. A plastic-eating protein was accidentally discovered by researchers from the University of, Pl- of not Plymouth, Portsmouth, last year. I think a plastic-eating protein is a pretty cool thing to stumble upon. So they accidentally created a mutant enzyme when they were conducting x-ray experiments to try and probe the structure of an enzyme called PETase. And PETase can degrade PET, which is probably evident by the name. PET is a kind of plastic that's it's quite recyclable, but when you dispose of it, it can last for hundreds of years before degrading. So this bacteria that they found in the Japanese recycling center had evolved to digest plastic with this naturally occurring enzyme called PETase. But then the researchers created the more powerful form of the protein when they were using x-rays. So will it be of use in the future? It's questionable, but it is very cool. Yeah, it's nice to hear stories about that and kind of fortuitous discoveries in the lab and stumbling across things. Um, so we've heard a lot today about how individual labs are trying to address the problem and different institutions, but is there a sort of collaborative effort between um, maybe nations or other institutions to address the issue sort of altogether? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, so my green lab is an effort that was started by someone called Alison Paradise to try and unite scientists into one like global initiative. It's a great name for coming up for, with a global solution for plastic problems. It is a great name. So My Green Lab is a non-profit organisation and if you participate in My Green Lab, then it leads to a Green Lab certificate, certification. That's the right word. So they go into labs and they assess their lab practices in 14 different categories and then they come up with an action plan for improvements that can be made. And so once they're implemented, the lab is then reassessed, and if they pass it, then they get this Green Lab certification. I don't know why I find certification such a difficult word to say. Um, So the aim of it is that researchers will develop new behaviours as a result of the initiative. And Every two years, the labs get reassessed to make sure that they're keeping up with it and that their behaviours have been maintained. So I think so far, it's only US-based. I might need to fact-check that. Um, But 200 labs have been awarded with the certification. And 10,000 scientists have been reached in the past year, so 2018 alone. Okay, brilliant. So it's something that's really growing and is sort of starting to take effect. And hopefully we can see if that starts to cross the cross the pond and um, comes across and starts taking action in Europe. So finally, I guess I'll ask, how about you? How does Abby Sawyer try and reduce her plastic and carbon footprint? You've put me on the spot a little bit here, Tristan. Yeah. I guess I could definitely be doing more. 
I do know somebody who managed to put all of their waste inside a mason jar with I think that was over the space of like six months inside one mason jar which is really impressive oh wow that's incredible so I do try and do my little bits um so I take my own bags to the supermarket I always try and buy loose fruit and veg so it's not packaged um I walk when possible and I turn all the lights off when I leave a room how about you, Tristan? What do you do? Well, I actually walk to work every day, so my uh, carbon emissions are pretty low. Um, in terms of plastics, I try and make sure that I'm always buying like minimally packaged things. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of my, my contribution. Okay, great. So to kind of round off, I think what I found really interesting here is that a lot of the time the scientific community sees itself as a sort of enlightened deliverer of information and it's our place to come up with the info and then give it to the rest of the world and for other people to then enact and maybe change their behaviours based on the information that we've given them. But it's actually something that we might, as a community, have had our head in the dark a bit about the kind of environmental impacts of the research that we're doing. So it's good to see that now the scientific community is beginning to start practicing what it preaches really and finding a way to act on its own information as opposed to just distributing it to others and starting to sort of take ownership of our impact on the environment. Well, that's all from me and Abby and um, hopefully we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this.